just tuned into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from Peter Weyand in episode number 403 and he discusses the transfer of traditional strength training into speed, onto speed. A very contentious issue but all will be revealed in this clip. But just before we do dive into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a solution to be able to collect, analyse, visualise and present data to coaches for free, check out AMS Lite from Rock Daisy at rockdaisy.com. Well, the next thing on the list, and it kind of links with the first one with the resisted uh, speed training. And I think this is something that I know when we spoke last week, it was a really topic of interest. And this is the the transfer of traditional gym-based, gym-acquired strength and how that actually transfers to the track. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Sure. That's, an, that's, a, that's a great question. It's an obvious one. We get it all the time. And it's a really important question. So the answer is, as much as I like simple answers, I like to say, here it is. This one's not that simple. It, de- it depends. It, um, and there are a lot of, of questions we don't have answers to in this space. But uh, I'll start by saying that the mechanics of top end speed are, it's a, it's a different mechanical task than accelerating, which is somewhat obvious. But people that are really good top end are not necessarily great accelerators. And, and the reverse is, is also true. And that's because of how those mechanics differ. There are different attributes that that go into accelerating quickly versus reaching a high and maintaining a high top end speed. So the weight room transfer seems to be better for very consistently. So for acceleration and, and things like, like jumping. And so the, or the push, the initial push in a sprint, whether it's out of the blocks or two point stance, uh, that seems to benefit from classic weight room strength, particularly extensor strength of the lower body. So squats, deadlifts, etc. Um, but those forces are a lot lower than the forces that are present during high end sprinting. Now, if we go to the flip side, our initial thoughts when we realized that force on the ground in relation to body mass was all important for speed was to think that, and this goes way back to our earliest studies, was that there was some limb strength component to it. But as we as we moved along, uh, particularly in Ken Clark's dissertation research, this was the focal point, trying to figure out the mechanism uh, during high, high velocity, steady speed sprinting the mechanism for forcefulness in relation to mass. And it turns out it's not limb strength at all. Even though we started down that path a little bit initially, we realized we needed to back up and do it in an alternative way. And so if you come back to the, the basic physics of it, force and motion are, are intrinsically linked, right? They're F equals MA, force is defined in terms of motion. Uh, and, and the scientific units we have to describe those things fall right out of that, the, the Newton, et cetera. So it turns out the answer to that question for, for max velocity sprinting is that it's a motion to force mechanism. So it's, it's not an intrinsic force from the limb. It's the motion of the limb as it comes into the ground. And there's an old adage in science that it only takes one data point to refute a hypothesis. And there are well-known athletes that are ridiculously fast, world-class athletes that at the time they were performing at a world-class level had no limb strength. And the two examples that we use are Allison Felix, uh, who um, her, was reported by her high school coach, one of her high school coaches, that when he put her on a deadlift program when she was a freshman in high school uh, and, and already approaching the U.S. national record for 200 meters, even at that young age, she couldn't deadlift her weight. So she was extremely weak, but you cannot run as fast as she was running without 
being extremely forceful on the ground. And the other athlete that we use that, that is a, an important data point that, that emphasizes what we found in the lab is true, that you can be extremely forceful on the ground, and that it's all motion to force, and it's almost very little limb strength. And that's Carl Lewis, because Carl Lewis is well known throughout most of his career, uh, and I think all of his the successful portion of his career never touched a weight. So Carl, I think by by any any knowledgeable person in track and field, is the greatest long jumper ever. The long jump, even more so than sprinting, requires forcefulness on the board, takeoff board in relation to weight. And of course, Carl was super fast. He won lots of sprint gold medals. Uh, and late in his career, there's a, there's a great article in the New York Times about what his strength was when he started to lift weights. And the numbers are incredibly low. So this person who is super forceful on the ground, obviously you can't long jump 28 plus feet with, without being extraordinarily forceful on the ground. And he did it regularly, uh, but he did it without limb strength in, in a traditional weight room sense. So those, those two practical examples drive home what we learned from our high quality lab measurements, which is that it's, it's all in the setup and the delivery and how the limb initially impacts the ground and that early per- portion of foot ground contact, that it's, it's a motion to force mechanism and it's managing, setting up and managing, essentially delivering a, a punch to the ground with your lower leg. That's, that's what all the fast people do. I think it's pretty hopefully common that people know that the mechanisms are different between acceleration and top speed. But do you think the influence of strength on top speed is something that's misinterpreted, unknown, people decide to ignore it, whatever that may be? Do you think there's a, a gap there? Yeah, I think there's a gap there in terms of, of what we know. So anecdotally, what comes back to us, particularly for the developmental athletes, is, uh, and this this came out of uh, Allison Felix high school strength coach, Barry Ross, um, who wrote a book on the ground secrets to speed, which many people in your audience may be familiar with. So Barry, you know, reading our early work that said it's all about mass uh, force in relation to mass, he thought, okay, and he was a, he was a classic strength training guy. He was a part of the muscle beach scene in Southern California back in the seventies. And uh, he was a, 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 a thrower. So he's a, a shot put guy. And had a lot of experience with weight. So he thought, okay, I can make these people really, he thought the intuitive thing to think, I can make these people really weight room strong. Uh, and he moved toward a, a deadlift because it incorporates all of the limb extensors. And that's that's an important concept because if if you think about the, the muscles in the leg that are responsible for pushing downward on the ground, it's all it's all the extensors. It's, it's the calves, it's the quads across the knee, hamstrings and glutes. So Barry thought, okay, I'll, I'll do deadlifts and have that uh, and just keep the, keep the intensity high and the volume low so they don't, they don't bulk up. And, and he had a lot of success with that. And it's consistently come back to us with, particularly with the developmental athletes that if they, if they can't lift on the deadlift two to two and a half times body weight, they, they don't perform as well. And the place where it shows up is pretty much is toward the acceleration end. Right. So, you know, how, how does it help them on top end? It, it just seems to from what they report, but how does that happen? If we know some of the best performers ever, can, can be extremely forceful with and, and by weight room standards be very weak. Um, what is the mechanism by which improving limb extensor strength does seem to consistently help, particularly the developmental athletes, with speed? And we don't really know that answer. We don't. So that's one place. The other thing that's mysterious is that the, the place that it seems to help, and this is intuitive, that the transfer from a, 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 like a squat type exercise or a deadlift 
if you make an athlete a lot stronger, it's, it's intuitive that they would, from a, a somewhat static situation, like a straight up vertical jump or a straight blast out of sprint blocks, that for that one shot, you're closer to what you're doing in the weight room than you are once you get moving over the ground and the force application process becomes more dynamic. So, and it does seem to pay pay more dividends for those types of exercises, what you see blasting out of the blocks, a straight up vertical jump. But the curious thing, and this is what we, what we don't know, is that particularly with the with the elite males, uh, there are a lot of constraints. There, there are simultaneous mechanical requirements you have to satisfy during acceleration, right? You, you don't want to pop too high up in the air. You need, you need to have the direction of the push go through your body. Uh, and if you're satisfying all those requirements, it puts a it puts a ceiling on how forceful you can be. So we know that they they can't and don't want to be nearly as forceful in those initial pushes as they are later in the sprint. Uh, but at the same time, so there's reason there's reasonable reason to believe that the particularly the elite males operate at at sub maximal levels of forcefulness, and that's something we're still investigating. But if that's true. <laughs> Then the question becomes, why is it when they get weight room stronger, do they seem to perform better on those tasks? So, and we don't currently have an answer to that question. It's part of what Lance is looking at. Okay, interesting. Did he did a study about arm involvement? He did. Is so that, that was one? Lance's Lance, master's thesis, yeah. which published uh, earlier in the year, and he did that. Uh, Ken Clark was his his master supervisor at Westchester University here in the U.S. in Pennsylvania, and so Lance. Uh, executed that study that was for his master's thesis, earned him his research master's degree. And, and it, we published, we got the study published after he was uh, with me. Doing, he started, Lance started as an undergraduate in our laboratory. Uh, so I encouraged him, given his interest, to go to go work with Ken. And, and I think it was a, a nice home for, for him. And I think Ken appreciated having him there. Uh, and so he executed that study. Uh, and it's a, a non-intuitive finding that, that you can, you know, do this with your arms from the start forward for a 30 meter all out sprints. And it makes very little difference. Just, just a touch. It was 0.08 seconds on average for tracks, track athletes, as well as uh, field field athletes. Um, and uh, so that was a really nice, uh, non-intuitive scientific result. Uh, I think it may challenge the views of some of the people in the speed world, uh, but that's what we're here for. Right. Absolutely. So that was just for the first 30 meters. 30 meters. It was 30 meters. Okay. That, so they opted to do that indoors and that gets rid of a lot of environmental variables that might have been confounding. So and 30 meters was the length that they could could go indoors and control the environment. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. As I mentioned, this clip came from episode number 403 with Peter Wayand and can be found on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today, and I'll chat to you next time.